0: Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Michelle Stevens. Her book is called Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse and Madness to Surviving and Thriving. Uh, It's been out uh, for a little bit, and she's just come to New York to do some media, and we're very glad that she could squeeze us into her schedule and Michelle, it's it's a pleasure to see you again.
1: It's a pleasure to see you too, Ron.
0: When I said see her again, uh, full disclosure here, some of you may know, in a previous life I was an acquiring editor at a book house. And one of the first meetings I took was with Michelle and her agent when Scared Selfless was in the proposal stage. And although it was not a book that I ended up getting, it was something that I kept an eye on and wanted to see succeed wherever it ended up. And so I'm thrilled that it had. But that actually gives me an entry point into one of the first questions to talk with you about, is that, you know, there's some very challenging material in here, which we'll get into over the course of this conversation. But to talk about what it was like to come forward at—I the, mean, there's you know there's the moment where you're writing it, and that's a challenge all in its own. But then there's that challenge when you've written the proposal and, and you've you've got the agent, and you're actually meeting with other people and saying, "This is who I am. Love me, Love me. Right. <laughs> please." Yeah,
1: I think that's hard for any writer, but particularly with my book because it was a very. Like as you said, a challenging subject. It's about sexual abuse. And I made a choice when I wrote even the proposal to be fairly explicit in the way that I described how I was abused because I didn't want it watered down and I had reasons for that. So I knew it was going to be a challenge to find a publisher because it's very taboo. You know, I I was first very lucky to find an agent who was willing to take it on, and then very lucky to find a few publishing houses that were interested in it. But it takes courage, you know, and the houses that were interested in it really had to show some courage in being interested in this topic.
0: Let's circle back and talk about, because this is systemic abuse that goes back a long time.
1: Yes, yes. I was abused from the time I was eight years old very extensively until I was 14. I was abused by a man who pretended to be my stepfather, and then he brought me into a pedophilic sex ring. And so I was just abused in every possible way, trafficked over many, many years, and all of which I detail in the book.
0: The initial coping mechanism that you came up with that is also a very critical part of the memoir, too. We want to talk about that. Sure. Um, The psychological... Basically what happens to you as a result of that abuse. Yes,
1: and yeah, and that's really why I wrote the book because I wanted to talk about what happens to children when they are traumatized. And there's a whole bunch of symptoms that happen to children when they're traumatized from depression to anxiety to PTSD. But the thing that I specifically talk about in the book is dissociation or dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple personalities. That's what most people think of it as. And that is something that I developed as a result of the abuse. So the book goes into that. In fact, the title, Scared Selfless, I was so terrified from the abuse that I literally lost any sense of myself.
0: What was the point at which you realized and were able to identify that that was what was happening rather than blacking out or whatever you thought was going on for all those years?
1: Yeah, I think I first suspected that there was something going on uh, in my tween years, like 12 and 13. I absolutely sort of found poems that I had written where I talked about feeling like I have a split personality and I couldn't figure out who was the real me. But I didn't actually definitively know that I had multiple personalities until my early early 30s.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things and as you write about this, as it manifests itself, it would take a keen eye to be able to distinguish that, say, from mood swing.
1: Absolutely, and that's really one of the points that I want to hit on. It's a very misunderstood diagnosis, multiple personalities. And people think of it as being incredibly... Florid, the way it's described in like civil, but in reality, for most people, dissociative identities are—they come out as very subtle moon changes. One minute I would be incredibly happy and friendly, the next I would be morose or seem to hate you. (laughs) And so, people with this disorder, we come off as moody. We often get misdiagnosed as bipolar. Sometimes we get diagnosed as schizophrenic because we just have such strange behavior. But what it really is is just these different personalities coming out.
0: Yeah, and even when it's not as radical a shift as that, because to people who are witnessing this, the fact that you know there's an embodied continuity to it—if mm-hmm. that's the right phrase—it's like basically, I mean, we're seeing you, and you're just behaving in all these different ways. And like you say, sometimes you know whether we attribute it to mood swings or or whatever, we see you, and we figure, well, that's all you. Correct. But for you. Right. Yeah, you know, as, as an interior experience. Although there can be a certain kind of continuity, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. It really is, from the inside, it's, it's much more radical and discontinuous.
1: Correct. It's as if, and this happened because of the abuse in childhood, and it's a rather complicated thing that I go into in the book, but essentially, because of the trauma, my consciousness was forced to split into all different parts. And so when one part of my consciousness is out, it's as if the other parts are blacked out. And so internally, yes, of course, I'm really just one person. But internally, it felt like I was many different people at different times. And I wouldn't have memories for what other parts of me had been
0: doing. Now, did you have, and I, this is more a metaphor than anything else, but did you have like a conductor personality or a, sort of like an overseer? Overseer is not the right word, but... Some yeah, over- someone
1: who controls things.
0: And and who, and who sees everything that's going on, even if she is not necessarily in the foreground all the time.
1: I would say yes, that that is true. Because there was always some sort of a force that seemed to be feeding the information. Every, I shouldn't say every, but just about every person with multiple personalities has what's called a host personality.
0: Okay. That's
1: the one that's out all day, that uses the name that the person has, and they tend to be very sort of goody-two-shoes. And and all the other personalities are basically hiding all the terrible things that have happened from this goody-two-shoes person. And what I found was there was sort of an overseer that knew everything that was constantly trying to feed my host personality, my past, to let me know my real history, not the whitewashed one that I believed I had.
0: And was not simply just your subconscious, but was in fact sort of like, a splintered facet of
1: I think so yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: now you said that you didn't really fully understand this diagnosis until your your early 30s and because you are a psychologist now let's talk about the timeline there in that which came first the desire to become a psychologist or the desire to understand what was going on
1: yeah I think that it started with the desire to know what was under what was going on you know when you when you've been traumatized I mean I I you know, multiple personalities is the absolute worst sort of condition on a spectrum of disorders that you can get. I was also incredibly depressed. I was suicidal. I had PTSD very badly. I had a lot of different symptoms, and and I was just a really unhappy person. So, I spent, you know, over a decade going to therapy, trying to figure out what was wrong with me, reading tons of books on psychology. I started to really try to build an an understanding of psychology and how the mind worked before I actually knew it. I had multiple personalities figuring out that I had multiple personalities was really the, the beginning of the end of my treatment
0: this was even before like formally studying to become
1: correct yeah <laughs> yeah I figured that out before I went back to school I went back to school in my late 30s
0: one thing that I want to get at here is okay so you get to the point where through therapy and your own research you understand what's happening to you. You then decide, okay, I'm going to take this understanding and I'm going to use it to help others. And, and we'll get to that part. In a, a, let's set that aside for just a moment. Sure. So you go in and you get the training. You understand what's happening to you. You're trained to, to deal with it in others. How to put this? It doesn't necessarily help you 100% in dealing with your own situation. Does it?
1: Uh, I would say for me. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be a psychologist for a long time, mm-hmm. but it was very important to me that I feel very, very emotionally healthy
0: Okay.
1: and together mm-hmm. before I ever started right. that journey.
0: So in terms of, I'm trying to think of the right word here, in terms of getting as close to fully integrated. Yes,
1: c- correct. Mm-hmm. I wanted to feel well mm-hmm. uh, before I ever even started my training. Is it true that there are other psychologists who are, are very... Most psychologists have some sort of, I don't want to say a full mental illness, but they have issues. That It's what brings you into the field. People come into whatever field because they have an interest in it. Someone with an eating disorder might end up becoming a therapist who works with eating disorders. This happens all the time. Some of those therapists are healed before they start working with patients. Some are not. And if you're not healed yourself, then there you really run the risk of bringing your own issues into the room with your clients, which obviously I try not to do. I mean, that's the healthy thing.
0: Yeah. And I guess what I'm getting at here is whether there's a distinction in, in a case like this between healed and cured.
1: Ah, interesting. I don't know that there is, <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> is there
1: a cure for life? Right. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, look, I, I am, I am fully integrated. Mm-hmm. I don't suffer really from depression or anxiety anymore. I probably suffer from it less than, people who never suffered from it very much. Mm -hmm. I still have a few little PTSD symptoms now and again, but they're completely manageable and very rare.
0: Right. And um, mainly the reason that I bring it up is because you do talk in the memoir about these sorts of things popping up well into your 30s. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't really start practicing until my very late 30s. Yeah.
0: That um, even at a point where, and there's a whole other conversation that we could be having here about also, discovering your, your sexual identity uh <laughs> and entering into a finally a healthy, stable relationship, yeah. which your other personalities proceeded to sabotage in its early stages. In
1: the early stages, true. <laughs> sure. yeah.
0: So at that point, where you're healed, you're moving forward, and and yeah, talking about that in terms of working with other people, and and as you said, people get into. This kind of field because they want to help people because and and Absolutely. often and often because they want to help people with something that they themselves have experienced. Yes. So, what is your focus as as a psychologist and a the therapist? Are you focused in this area?
1: Absolutely. My specialty is trauma psychology, and while it's not the it's certainly not the only thing I treat in my private practice, I run a charity called Post Traumatic Success, which offers all sorts of help in different ways to people who suffer from trauma. So absolutely my focus is helping people who have been through traumas like I've been through. And I must say also, you know, for me personally, I think one of the biggest things that made me want to become a psychologist was that I eventually met such a great psychologist who, she was extraordinary and she really helped me heal and she was such a great mentor to me that it made me want to just pay it forward.
0: What would you say... In doing that, what would you say is the biggest misconception about disassociative identity disorder that you would like to
1: dispel? dispel? Sure. I mean,
0: because clearly, yeah. I mean, even in this conversation, you know, clearly there are things that as much as I get, you can tell from my questions right. that there are things I don't get.
1: Right. The number one thing that I would like to dispel is the idea that it's rare. Everyone thinks it's incredibly rare. The research shows that it is not. Dissociative identity disorder is a condition that people do not know they have and that other people usually can't tell they have. It looks like other conditions. But if you walk into, say, a mental health clinic and you give a bunch of people an assessment, a paper assessment, 1% of the population will have DID. That's the same as schizophrenia. So it's not rare. It's not, like everyone has it, but 1% is not rare. The second thing that I really want to dispel is the idea that it is fake (laughs) there's a a lot of people who still believe that it's a made-up disorder it doesn't really exist which is absolutely ridiculous i hear doctors and psychologists say i don't believe in that think about how ridiculous that is it's it's in our diagnostic manual there's a hundred years of research to support the fact that it exists some doctor or someone else saying i don't believe in it well you know, because they th- they say, well, it started being uh, uh, you know diagnosed more. It it, the inc- it started increasing in diagnosis in the eighties. Well, so does erectile dysfunction now. Does that mean it doesn't exist? It, it's a silly idea.
0: Right. I mean, even like the most famous cases, as you said, er- much earlier in the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say when well, people think of this, they think of Sybil. Yeah. And of course, that's become a, a more problematic mm-hmm. case over time. Correct. But that still does not mean that the phenomenon is not there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's it's not, it's, it seems very odd to people, but I hope that in the book I explain, I I worked very hard to try to explain how it happens so that people could really start to understand the
0: disorder. We talked a little bit early on about sort of finding the courage to come forward and share the manuscript with other people. Mm -hmm. And let's go back to that intermediate stage of finding the courage after you've You've gone through your healing process your therapeutic process and and also done your own work on yourself finding that courage you know what prompts you to say you know what it's not enough that I've worked this out for myself I need to do a book about this
1: yeah well the book started out as my dissertation in college you know I had gone through my healing process and I wanted a record you know because I remembered my life part of multiple personalities is that you repress a lot of memories, particularly traumatic memories. So I had remembered those over the, a series of about 15 years, and I wanted to document my whole history in a narrative so that I had it all as one narrative. And I also wanted to then, um, I wanted to infuse that narrative with psychological understanding. And so that became my dissertation. And then it was someone else's idea, actually, that it become a book, uh, a friend of mine who writes books. Had said, wow, this would be a really great book, uh, and sent it to an agent.
0: In doing that, had you already figured out your, for lack of a better term, closure in terms of what had happened to you with your fake stepfather and your mother enabling all this? The closure had come before the book writing process or, or no? Yes,
1: I think that the closure had come, uh, before before, certainly while writing the dissertation, Mm -hmm. but probably even before that. By the time I started my psychology program, I had already really come to terms with everything. Of course, when you're writing a book, you bring it all up again. I had all new understandings. It was hard sometimes to write that book. It took me like a year and a half, and I had to delve again into some very painful stuff. So every time you, you know, this is true of everyone, every time you tell your story, it brings more understanding. It brings more closure.
0: Yeah, and also that sort of sense of trepidation in terms of, you know what, I'm not going to be silent about this anymore. Yes. I'm going to name names. Yes. Um,
1: I'm going to be very okay. honest about what was done to me.
0: Right. And mm-hmm. once that and once that gets to the publication stage, that comes with certain, uh, I don't want to say repercussions because that's the wrong word. Responsibilities mm-hmm. might be a better word.
1: Yes. That That is, you know, the whole time I was writing it, shopping it around as a proposal, giving it to the editor. I was all, I could come to terms with that. I'm a writer. I'm used to writing and people reading my writing. But it was a very small group of people. When it really got scary is when we were about to publish. And I realized that this thing was going out to I didn't know who. And when I knew I had to do publicity for the book. That That was a whole new level of terror for me because it was so public. And, and this is just, I mean, this is probably true of any memoir writer, but certainly true of victims of trauma and particularly sexual trauma. We're taught to be very, very ashamed of our victimization. So telling your truth in such a giant forum is really scary.
0: Especially, I wonder, in a climate where, I mean, and not that things were much better in 2014 when you were shopping this, but certainly when the book came out in early 2017, Mm -hmm. Where we are living in a climate where let's the, call it the, the pussy grabber climate, yeah, the, the pussy yeah. grabbing climate, where you know clearly by our cho- by our choice of national leader, our concern with sexual assault seems yes minimized.
1: Well, and it, it and ca- and the callous approach that many took to that. Yes, I had to go on Doctor Phil to announce the publication of my book right. I think the same week as that, all that pussy grabber stuff was happening or right around then. And it was so scary and so shocking to see how much people don't care. They don't care about sexual assault. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying the fact that anyone doesn't care. And the callous words that some people use is very upsetting to me still.
0: But as you say, that's a minority. It's it's a vocal minority, but it's a minority.
1: Yes. Yeah. In my case, I was so scared of the reaction I would get, honestly. And 99.9% of the people who have had any contact with me, it's been incredibly supportive. I mean, overwhelming support I've gotten for this book. Which, again, whole new level of healing. To be validated in that way. After, you know, as a kid, you're told that you're lying or you're making it up or it's your fault. And so to go from there to a place of, publicly saying what happened to me and having, you know, celebrities validating my experience is just amazing to. Me.
0: In terms of where you go from here, you know, this is a very particular kind of book, one that combines a personal story with as and, and as you said you wanted all along to combine that personal story with a psychological infrastructure yes. of, of understanding. Now as a psychologist yourself and a therapist yourself, you are in a position where you can continue writing in that vein. So what, where is your writing headed? Is it headed more personal or more, prof- you know, professional or still somewhere down the middle?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. It's what I'm really pondering right now as I'm working on my next proposal. For a long time, I wondered if I should write another book on trauma. I asked myself about that. And I, cause I do have some more to say on that subject, but it's just not what's burning for me right now. And so, I think that what I'm planning to do is stick with the form that I sort of created in this first book, which is memoir slash information. And I'm going to be talking about another experience that I had trying to have a child and the problems I had with infertility. And then eventually I, we tried to adopt through the foster care system and we ended up, we took in two babies when they were born and had them for a year all the time thinking we were adopting them and then lost them both. So my next book is going to be talking a lot about the loss of children, the foster care system, and, and providing information on all of that because I've had a lot of feelings with, like, the foster care system and things like
0: that. I just want to clarify, yeah. that pretty, when you say you lost them both, it was that's more like through the foster care yes, system. Yes, they were
1: taken away. Yeah, they didn't yeah. die. But it's an interesting <laughs> thing. To us, they kind of did because mm-hmm. they were just taken away from us. They were our children. They were my son's brothers, and they were just taken away from us. And it was a very strange, strange experience, because they're not dead, and yet, in a way, to us, they are. We'll never know where they are, what they've done with their lives. Yeah.
0: That is a book that, you know, based on what we've seen in Scared Selfless about your ability to combine the discussion of your own personal experience with a knowledge of the field, I think that is something that we will look forward to seeing when it's whenever it's ready. In the meantime, the book that is out now, which I encourage you all to read, is Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse and Madness to Surviving and Thriving. I've been talking with Michelle Stevens about it. You've been listening to Life Stories. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you might go to iTunes and rate it highly and review it nicely. That makes it easier for other people to find it in the iTunes store. And if you subscribe through there, you'll always know when the new episode comes out as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll come again for another episode soon. Take care.